This is Sarah Miller from Ink Master Season 2, and I have issues. guys, welcome to Adrian Has Issues. This week's episode features a good friend of mine, Logan Richards. Logan is a sculptor and artist based out of the Midwest. We met a couple of years ago on Twitter as we're both massive fans of the progressive rock band Coed and Cambria. If you've listened to episode 56, The Weird World of Niche, you know how much I love Coed and I couldn't pass up another opportunity to talk about them. Logan is also the founder of iHeart Toys, which creates custom vinyl toys and other really cool art projects. This episode is less of an interview and more of a laid-back conversation, as we spend the next hour or so catching up. We cover a wide range of topics including the impact of geek culture's rise to the mainstream, and how growing up as geeks have shaped the way we experience our fandom. Please check out Logan's stuff online on Facebook at iHeartToys, that's E-Y-E-H-A-R-T Toys. He's on Instagram at iHeart2113, and check out his shop at iHeartToys.StoreNV.com. So sit back and relax as two friends get super nerdy on another great episode of Adrian Has Issues. The internet makes anything easy for anybody. You can do anything you want. So it's not like that, but it's connections with local people that are the hardest, and I think those are the strongest ones you can make, because you can see those people every day or easily talk to them face-to-face. So networking is still just as easy as, I mean, I'm talking to you right now. Right. But especially for what I do, you say the word toys and someone automatically thinks, oh, my kids. So walking into an art gallery, it's a little different. Yes, I have pieces that are art, but they still have the word toy in them. And I'm not ashamed of that, so I won't hide it. I do say miniatures and sculptures and stuff like that, but at their heart, they are what they are. There's a big push there and like the vinyl toy market. But again, like you said, the word toys there, even after several years, I would say maybe roughly around like a decade or so, that's kind of become a thing. And even like, let's say like the Funko Pops, you know, those are very popular, but yet yes. they're still considered toys. And there aren't too many people who make the distinctions like, well, these are more collectibles. These aren't toys like you would say, you know, like an action figure or like, you know, I don't know, like a Barbie or something like that. Like, yeah. yeah, you could play with them if you want to, but they're definitely a little bit different than that. Yeah, I mean, if you want to spend 40 to $50 on a four-inch toy that your kid can slobber on, that's completely your decision. <laughs> but I, I will say that with the, the comic book craze and all of it, it has brought a lot more light to action figures like the Black Series and Marvel Legends. They even get packaged differently to cater right. to an older audience, which is which is really cool for me because I've collected toys my whole life. So growing up with my dad's Marvel Legends, those were those were toys. Those were packaged for kids, though they were nice. But now it's like even Star Wars is like, oh, no, 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 this can be collected. That's fine. Just put it on your shelf. We, we advise that. Or your kid can slobber on it either way. <laughs> that's like one of those selling points. I'm like, hey, I heart toys. Your kids can slobber on this. Fine. <laughs> Maybe that's probably the worst selling point, though. Yeah, I do. I mean, there are people in the industry and friends that I've made that because they do make this, they do let their kids play with them. But they're also raised in a different way. Those kids are raised like my children will be. They'll know what they are. But one of these days, I will hope to give my, my Star Wars toys to my kids and he will actually play with them. 
So eventually, I think all of them come to a point where they are what they are, play with them when they get to a certain point. But yes, my dilemma lately has been Midwestern life and the toy market. So that's my, my hurdle. Though I don't let it stop me, it is there. I didn't know much about vinyl toys and collectibles up until fairly recently. So even now, like I'm still learning a lot about that. And there's so much stuff that's so cool, but yet I don't necessarily know like the ins and outs of it. So I'm actually really glad to talk to you because in a way I feel like you're helping me out more than I may be helping you. To be honest with you though, I feel exactly how you feel. I'm, I'm, I'm not part of it, but this is my community now. And there is so much more to it than you'd ever imagine. These things have been around since, I mean, Kid Robot just celebrated like 15, 16 years in, in business, but then Metacom, Metacom in Japan, they've been going for 20 years. I just, something happened like two years ago. I don't, no one can put it, it's like an earthquake or something. And all of a sudden, <laughs> designer toys became a, like you said about podcasting, a viable art option. It wasn't just, I mean, cause people like Huck G and, Hit robot and all of them. they've been doing it forever, but they do it under the radar. Right. Something happened. I think it had to do with Instagram or something, but something happened and all of a sudden everyone wants to do it. And for the weirdest thing, it's a trend that I'm okay with because it is people creating something. Yes, there, the, the market is still flooded just like any other market that becomes popular. It's still flooded with thises and thats. We'll put anybody's name on blast or their styles or anything, but you see a lot of the same stuff. But no matter what, you're seeing someone make something so it's like a few years ago when self-publishing comic books became cool i'm perfectly okay with that being cool not only is it a culture that i like i always have liked you're making something even if it's the worst piece of shit ever you put your heart and soul into it and you made it so i'm really there with you i try to be as part of much of this community as i can but it's it's huge it's like trying to find the the truth in the star wars universe <laughs> that, that's, that's how it's how it feels to, to stay on geeky subject, that's how every time you find someone, they know 10 other people that know more and that have been around longer. And you're like, what the hell? Where have you people been? Right? And that's what's so funny. Like, especially like lately with episode seven coming out, people were just running out trivia. And I'm like, look, I've watched these movies, read the comics. I've been doing this stuff for years. Where did you guys pull this stuff? And it turns out it's like, oh, it's right here. Oh, okay. Internet, right. Have you ever played Star Wars Trivial Pursuit? No. Do not. You will think you are a Star Wars genius until you play that game. And you're like, who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> Why he is the, the fifth man in the credits of the Empire Strikes Back. That's who that is. And those are the kind of questions they ask in that game. So to anyone ever that can beat Star Wars to pursuit, I will marry you or do something because it's ridiculous. It's the worst <laughs> game ever. Uh, it's so funny, though, because like my girlfriend, her son is big into Star Wars. So I was like, OK, cool. We have some common ground. So here I am thinking I'm going to be really cool. and like, oh, I'm going to show off and tell him how much I know Star Wars. Next thing you know, he's pulling out stuff because whereas I grew up watching the original trilogy and prequels, but yet he's in tune to like, you know, Clone Wars and Rebels and... And those things actually matter. I didn't know that. That happened too, because I'm like, wait a minute, a lot of stuff was not canon, but I guess after Disney bought Lucas and next thing you know, like a lot of the new stuff that came out became canon. And I was like, oh shit, I know nothing. I've, I haven't watched Rebels, but I watched The Clone Wars, and there was some really dumb stuff. But there's also some, re A, really great animation, and B, there is some really good Star Wars shit in there. Yeah, it's surprisingly dark, because it kind of deals with a lot of, 
you know, the clones humanity. Cause a lot of times, most episodes of them questioning like their own purpose. And I'm like, Oh wow, this is surprisingly deep. Yeah. It's, it, it's like speaking of, I mean, we're going to go into some, some geekness Pokemon go. I've been playing. So I watched Mewtwo strikes back yesterday. Okay. Speaking of deep shit, man, that movie was not made for the eight year old. I was eight when that movie came out and I saw in theater. That movie was not made for me. <laughs> that movie was made for my dad who took me because he had to sit through that stupid Pokemon shit. <laughs> Mewtwo was a prophet, not only for the Pokemon, but for my future. So if you haven't watched Mewtwo Strikes Back in a while, watch it, but prepare to hurt in the worst ways. You're not the first person to say that. How old were you in 1998? I know you're older than I am, but how old were you in 98? Okay, 98, let's see, I was... Seventh, eighth grade. So let's say I don't know, like you—you you were probably what, like thirteen, fourteen then. Yeah. Okay. So you and I had a very different Pokemon experience, and that's what this Pokemon Go is bringing out of people. All of us enjoyed it, and all of us enjoyed it in the same way. But it's like the Ninja Turtles. We enjoyed it at different times, so we enjoy it for different reasons. Like you're fourteen years old, you kind of have the world figured out. I'm eight. <laughs> All they wanted from me was my mom's money. They wanted from you a lifelong fan. Oh, no. It was roughly the same thing. I think at least when we grew up, wow, I feel like I'm so much older, but, you know, they kind of hit it a little bit different where it's like, oh, no, we don't want your money. Like, they sold the majesty of it. You know, Pokemon, you're, you're friends forever and the bond between man and Pokemon. But, you know, now it's just kind of like, collect these things, share them, buy more. And, you um, know, that's fine because that's basically what they told us because at first when, like, Red and Blue came out, it's like, oh, this is a fun game. It's like, all right, the cartoons are out. Then Yellow happened. And oh, basically, yellow is the exact same thing as red and blue with, okay, you get to walk around with your Pikachu, and there's a little bit different animation screens. But for the most part, that's the exact the same, same game. And nobody complained and said, wait a minute, we're spending the same amount of money for the same thing. We all just want, we all knew we wanted it, but we just didn't even think about how we were kind of getting screwed over. But it was just a wonderful thing. My ninth birthday, I will never forget because of Pokemon and yellow more importantly the pikachu edition game boy color it was my very first game boy ever and it had fucking pikachu on it <laughs> nice hook line and sinker they've had me for life since then but i will never forget that i sat there and wore those batteries to death in one day trying to beat yellow you were right because i had i hadn't played any of the games up to that. i'd collected the cards and watched the tv show i beat yellow loved myself my friends oh i have blue trade me we'll play it was the same damn game. Yep. We came back two, three days later, and we're like, what the, what the hell is this? But you're right. They repackaged it. They gave us a walking Pikachu. Sweet. And they sent us on a merry way. And they're, do, they're, they're doing it again. Because you know what? With Pokemon Go, every time someone catches a Pikachu, they are stupid excited. Right. Everyone up to, will swear up and down up to that. I hate Pikachu. He's the worst. No one likes that freaking thing. As soon as they catch it, oh, my, mom, mom, I caught a Pikachu. Who, who gives a shit? Mom, I caught a Pikachu. And that's the effect that it has. Something that I'm learning very, very much as an adult that we're all stupid. We're all suckers for the shiny new things. <laughs> we are, though, but yet, I don't know, at least with Pokemon, especially now, they're a lot more honest about the whole thing. And yet, as much as we're idiots... You know, especially, okay, you know what, let's use a, a, a modern thing. Like I said, Pokemon Go. It's everywhere. Everybody's playing it. Everybody's, you know, posting screenshots. 
on one end, part of me wanted to get really mad about it because I'm saying, you know, oh, of course it's, you know, it's another fad and, you know, people are just kind of, you know, creating a nuisance because, and it's already now, matter of fact, my girlfriend just got a message on her phone. The park, like two blocks from our house, is doing a Pokemon Go meetup. Yep. No, there's, there's three in my area already. So shameless marketing, if we're going to talk about it, Marvel and Disney, and I'm not even mad. Like you said, I, I'm not even mad because it's cool to see all that stuff, but Disney has taken over the world one day at a time. Right. And they, they proved it with Civil War. I haven't seen the movie yet, but they pitted good guys against good guys. Greatest marketing strategy ever. Cause now all their toys are good guys. Mm-hmm. And think about it. When you were a kid, what did you grab when you went to Gaby Toys? You grabbed Wolverine and Batman and Ninja Turtle. You didn't grab fucking foot soldiers. You left them. Those were peg warmers. So now Disney's in charge. They're like, Iron Man's the bad guy. Oh, but Captain America's the bad guy. But both of them are good guys. Damn, I didn't even think about it like that. The thing that makes it the most sense, especially with them, the Chitauri. I don't know how in, in action figures you were when the Avengers came out. The Chitauri had four or five different versions of action figures. That's all you ever saw. Because it's the ones that no one wanted. Right. And so what we all think on the surface is this great story that's going to build into the Infinity Gauntlet or whatever is actually just a 90-minute toy commercial. And we're okay with it. And you know what, though? I think as far as our generation, and I'm going to say our generation because, you know, we're roughly around that same time. But think about mm-hmm. it, though. All the cartoons that we watched in the you know the 80s and early 90s, and even up until the mid-90s, they pretty much were toy commercials. And it's funny because I didn't realize this, but I don't know if you remember when you were younger, when they had cartoons on, they'd have to put that thing up and basically say, we'll be right back after these messages. Yeah. But basically, I didn't find out until damn near like three years ago that that was done after the fact for a lot of shows because they had to, you know, basically tell people, okay, these are in fact commercials and not a part of the cartoon. I don't doubt that. We'll go back to Star Wars. Have you ever seen uh, the making of of a trilogy? The behind the scenes documentary. It came out like three years later. Um, I've seen. Wait, which of was Star Wars or? Yes, Star Wars. It came out in like eighty uh, seven. It was a few years after Return. But regardless of that, I did not know that Star Wars was the first motion picture to have a toy line. George Lucas created franchising and toys all at once. And I did not know that until like six months ago. That's nuts. So I now realize that, like you said, the the cartoons that we watched, they all came from that. They all came from Star Wars. And it blew my mind to sit there because for Christmas a few years ago, an ex got me a book that was a thousand and one Star Wars collectibles. It was from all over the world, all different times from the 70s now. And you think about the reach that Star Wars has, and then Episode 7 comes out, and it proves it. That's that's why I said Disney's taking over one day at a time. The next thing they're going to do is they're going to buy Walmart, and they're going to buy Apple, and they're going to buy Coke, and the whole world will end. And it will all be that Mickey, Mickey Mouse's fault. As much as you say that, I'm not even originally upset because I think about, you know, in the case of Star Wars... Nothing was really going on. With, I shouldn't say nothing, but nothing fun was really going on with Star Wars for a very long time. Exactly. And as I said, they're shameless and I'm not mad, but Disney has bought a couple of companies that were maybe recognizable and they've turned them into something that is really, really awesome for 
geek culture, but also for people in general. Now everyone may be into the same thing, but at least they're all getting along in some way. Right, because, I mean, think about, you know, especially going back to as kids, I mean, the DC and Marvel, granted, yeah, that fight still happens, but yet, you know, it was just like, there was all these different things, these different companies, and of course, y'all battled, but, and yes, we can argue that maybe it is a little dubious that they're all under the same umbrella, but yet, Disney, for all intents and purposes, are just marketing geniuses. Yeah. I don't know and- how they do it. I don't know if they, you know, worship some sort of crazy deity that's good at sales. But yet, <laughs> they this- just know, they know their people. They know how to get them. And it's like, if only we were that savvy when it came to the thing that we were selling, you know? I think, I, I saw it in the social network. I can't see who said it first, but... Disney doesn't perfect things. They create everything. But they have this reputation and just this you just see the the G not the G, the D of Disney and you you trust it. Right. I think that's what it what it is is for a long time they created these beautiful children's movies that taught them life lessons and were wonderfully animated and they pushed the envelope and they've kept doing that, but now they do it in a way that says we want everyone's money, not just your kids. And so they've created something that is good for everyone because growing up through that, I loved Batman because the animated series was perfect, but I was still the weird kid. I had a Batman towel that I used for a blanket whenever I was in kindergarten for nap time, and I was always the weird kid. But think about it now. Everyone knows who these really obscure, weird-ass characters are now. The subculture that used to be has now become the main culture, and to be normal is to be weird. Because I work with a bunch of older people who are not at all up with the times. (laughs) And they're weird because of that. They're not playing Pokemon Go. They don't give two shits about what's happening in the Marvel Universe, or that Captain America is now Captain Hydra. And that's weird. And that's why it's always a little, you know, not to go too far off, but it's like, it is a little baffling when, let's say, you know, you mentioned Captain Hydra, but that storyline made national news. And it's weird because not that, you know, I hate to make that assumption that people don't know what's going on, but to your basic person who maybe has no real connection to comic books or even comic book culture, does that story still hold any weight? I think so now, maybe. At least that story. Maybe the, the whole gravity of it, not so much, but that, that story in particular, yes. Because Captain America has been a symbol of not just comics, but kind of America for a long time. And I know he's been on lunchboxes and weedy boxes. So I think Captain America is someone that everybody recognizes. He's like Superman. Everybody knows Superman's a good man. So Superman being bad, but in the whole balloon of this culture, no. To be totally honest, it making national news probably pissed off somebody. They're like, I wanted to know the weather, not about Captain America. <laughs> and so there's people out there that don't give two shits about Captain America. But at the same time, it hits a lot more. My mom, actually, something that I know you will care about. And this goes more in the reach of the Internet. When Mike Todd got busted for his infractions. Yep. And that was, what, five years ago? Yeah. And my mom doesn't care about Coheed at all. She told me. She texts me. She's like, did you know the bassist of that stupid band you like got kicked out of the band for trying to steal drugs? <laughs> I mean, trying to steal drugs in, 
you know, I'm not making light of the situation, but in one of the most batshit insane ways I would have even thought of. Yeah, but th- that was five years ago, and that still hits me every now and again that my mom, who doesn't care, she's not too out of touch, she's not that old, but someone who doesn't care can easily access that information. And so going back to the Captain America thing, for that to make national news doesn't really surprise me that much anymore. That is true. But at the same time, it's still weird to see Captain America on CNN because the image of CNN is we're going to deliver the hard-hitting news. Now, that's Captain America drawn by – that's not even the real Captain America. So that the whole counterculture, real culture now, I don't know. It's kind of cool. But at the same time, whenever you see a fully tattooed, blue-haired person walking up and down the street and they're getting sneers from the quote-unquote normal people – you, you still have that horrible funk. For a very long time, you know, we got made fun of and maybe not necessarily beaten up or anything like really extreme. But, you know, anytime I remember going on about comics, especially to kids I went to school with, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of looked at you like, what are you rambling on about? Like, no one really cared. And yet I have co-workers who probably like yours who would come up to me and I know they didn't really read comics, but they come up to me as like, you know, asking me what, I, you know, about the Avengers and who these characters are. And I'm just, and at first I would just look at him and be like, wow, you're asking me these questions. And it's almost, it's not even upsetting as it is just baffling. Cause I'm like, I never would have fucking guessed. <laughs> yeah. I hate to be that person of old. I hate that this is cool, but I was that kid too. I used to take comics to school all the time and read them in my lunch. And I went to a very small redneck school. There were 500 kids and I was the emo kid. So of course I was weird, but they would come and, you know, knock them out of my hands and stuff. But now there's this older lady. She loves the Marvel movies. She's like, Logan, did you see civil war yet? And I haven't, (laughs) I I haven't seen civil war. She's like, Oh my God, you haven't seen. And all of a sudden it, I'm just looking at her. It was this, like you said, this bafflement of, you're a 60-year-old woman, and you've seen Civil War, and you're ridiculing me for not seeing it yet. What the fuck am I doing with my life? Thankfully, it's been very cool, and it's just, like, I never would have thought. And every so often, even just in terms of being on Twitter and just talking about the stuff that I talk about, and, you know, as, you know, we kind of hinted at earlier, we met being fans of Coed and Cambria, Mm -hmm. And, you know, that band is very ingrained in comic book culture and things like that, as we know, because Claudio Sanchez is a giant geek. But (laughs) I have to interject. And I love you, Claudio, but your writing has gotten a lot better since In Keeping Secrets. Really? You think it was bad? Not to get too off subject, but one of my least favorite things is that one in Key of Z. I love that band. I love his creative mind. But both of those make my head hurt. Now, Key of Z... Is it my favorite story? Hell no. But I will say, I guess you could definitely tell where his influences are, because as someone who clearly heavily influenced by, let's say, George A. Romero, maybe Mm -hmm. even a little bit of The Walking Dead, but also like a little bit of maybe like The Warriors thrown in, which I don't know if you like have seen it or are a fan of that movie. And see, that's the part I do like the very like lone wolf kind of retribution, but it was the generic zombies that got it for me. Uh. Ah, I really like that's what killed. They were just like you said, George A. Romero, Walking Dead, boring zombies. Because I read that right after I finally had the chance to read Kill Audio. And Kill Audio is still one of my favorite stories ever. The art and the story all together is perfect. So to come off of the high of that, to read this generic, very Claudio like love story with zombies, maybe I need to go back and read it again. But it just, it, it fell short for me upon first reading. 
the theme in there is fine, but it's just I got lost in this generic zombie world. I guess it's not too different from what we were talking about, considering, like, I mean, come on. How many times have you mentioned storylines of the Amory Wars to people and had to look, like, from back in the day when you would talk comic books to random people? And every so often, there'll be someplace, and someone's like, Cody and Carrie, like, hell, right now I am wearing my um Good Apollo Volume 1 shirt, the one from uh, New York Comic Con. Okay, oh, I hate you, I want that one. But yeah, and it's, it's like, someone came up to me, and it's like, what does that mean? And... Anytime anyone asks me about Cody and Cambria or what like my shirts mean, like I can't explain it because I don't know how. I have the stars of Sirius tattooed on my arm. Not the key work, just the blue stars of Sirius. Every time someone asks about it, it's either just what the hell is that or why do you have blueberries on your arm? So I guess I do still have that. Who are you? Because that's how it is with Cody. There's no easy way to it. Because if you explain it, it's about a guy who has to destroy the universe to save it. Okay, that does that that doesn't do it anywhere near the justice that it requires. But I have an interesting question for you, Coheed to Coheed fan, and you've read in Keeping Secrets, like yes. the comic. Okay, how much of that story do you think is actually the original story? Because that I think that is my biggest issue with those is I can't put aside how great the musical story is enough to really benefit from the comic because all of his other work the translucent and kill audio those are complete there's no story we don't know anything but in keeping secrets disappoints me because i feel like so much was changed to fit a comic book world instead of just making the comic based on the music I have to really go back and think about the things that are different because I know when I first read the comic, it was a lot different than what I was expecting it to be. But yet I've come to think about it. But if you really think and I look like this is kind of like really inside baseball here. But, you know, like that other episode I did with Niche, like only a few people will probably really get this. (laughs) But I don't even care because this is this is my geekdom. But now that you mention it, I always felt like. And this is going back before I even knew there were comics to this stuff. This is just strictly as a listener. I always sort of felt that in keeping secrets as an album, and I guess from what story I was able to derive from it, always felt like a prelude to what was what we now know as, you know, Good Apollo. Yeah. From second stage Turbine Blade, it only deals with them as a couple and, you know, Claudio's the character Claudio, not the singer Claudio, but the start of his journey. Yeah, and you you don't really see much of him at all anyway. Keeping Secrets is the true start of his story because it's like, now he's in it. You know, his parents are dead at this point. You know, the world's screwed up and he has to, of course, come to grips with the fact that he is going to save the world, but not in the way that, let's say, you know, Batman saves the world or Captain America. He's basically here to, to basically just <laughs> to wipe level it. Yeah, and it's really cool. But And that's also that cool part of how do you even come to terms with something like that? So you don't even get like your typical superhero story of, oh, you're going to be the, you know, the savior of the world. But it's like, oh, no, you're really going to be the destroyer of it. But trust me, it's totally legit. It'll help out. So, you know, a lot of that story I always felt was just him kind of coming to terms with that. But yet, it's really just sort of setting things up. Originally, I thought the story didn't really go anywhere. But then I thought about it. I'm like, it can't go anywhere until we set up what needs to happen. I think that's where my disappointment lies as well. And because, yes, we have a horrible graphic novel called Good Apollo. But it gives us enough story that we know the gist of what's going on. And so to read In Keeping Secrets, I'm just waiting for good Apollo to be, okay, here you go, next book. And 
you're you're right. Nothing really happens, but everything. It, it's it's a very Star Wars esque film kind of thing where nothing's happening, but everything is getting ready to explode. If you don't necessarily know where the start is, it's not going to make any sense when things happen because I think that's what sort of went down. You know, Good Apollo at least was the first of the comics I think I had read. And none of it really made much sense to me because I've been a fan roughly around, I think, I want to say fall of, no, I'm sorry, like more like summer 2003. But I didn't really get into the storyline until I want to say, what, the No World for Tomorrow era. What was it about No World for Tomorrow that brought everybody in? Because that's when I really found it. At the time, it was their most accessible album. And it's like, okay, I don't necessarily know the full sci-fi story, but as somebody who was, you know, very much into metal and, you know, clearly their Iron Maiden influences worn on their sleeve, it's like, okay, I know that band now just kind of speaks to me in a certain way. So then I think from there, I then went back and it's like, okay, clearly there's a story here. I need to go back and figure out what's going on. How have you felt as a fan for the last couple of years, just in general? Because it feels like everybody's getting a little bit more grubby. Do you mean from a fan's perspective? From the fans, because I know and everybody's noticed there's much more merchandising going on. As an elder fan, how do you feel? I think about the fans in general. Let's be honest. It's funny that we talk Coheed. And while it feels like a tangent, it kind of fits into a lot of what we've already been discussing. Because mm-hmm. think about Coheed and Cambria and their fan base a lot, like, let's say, in that you're a comic book fan. Yeah. For a very long time, it was something that was only really enjoyed by a select group of people. There wasn't really a lot of crossover because, you know, it's like you said, it's really hard to explain the Amory Wars or the comics or the concept. Either you did or you didn't. But the only difference is... What's great about that band is you kind of didn't really have to because, remember, I listened to them strictly from a musical aspect for a very long time. You know, I just knew I liked the songs and I was aware that there was at least a little bit of a story or a connection. But for a good number of years, I didn't think much of it, at least not until, let's say, the first Good Apollo. So then from there, because as a geek, and I'm talking geek strictly in terms of whatever it is you're into... So it doesn't have to be comics. It could even be like Needlecraft or Cars or whatever the hell you're really into. But, you know, you get really into the things that you're into. So, of course, now that I'm cemented, like, okay, my love of creating Cambria is a thing. And now I'm, I'm in it for life. So I need to know the ins and outs. So in a lot of ways, I stumbled about trying to, you know, piece together the storyline and, but not only just the storyline, but also the personal stories. Cause, you know, in addition to the comic book and the concept and everything, there's also the stories that influenced the songs, then kind mm-hmm. of made the parallels to the actual concept of the albums. So there's kind of like multiple layers of this nonsense. So, you know, for a very long time, it was kind of like the secret thing that either you just knew or you didn't know. But the the band itself, you know, they've grown, they've got older, and let's be honest, like, their sound, while isn't necessarily as, like, heavily prog as it was, you know, it's opened up a little bit. Yeah. It's changed a lot, but granted, so have I. You know, I'm not that weird kid who was just out of college when I found out about them. You know, I'm older, and, you know, being in a relationship and, you know, had, you know, things happen, now songs from, like, let's say the most recent album, uh, The Color Before the Sun, now kind of hold relevance. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, much like the comic book community, 
that's kind of bothered a lot of people. What used to be strictly for this one group, you know, they've opened up and yeah, they are still pretty deep and, you know, into the concept, but yet it's not strictly for this particular fan base. And I think because for a very long time, much like with comic book fans, it was something that was held so deep with a certain group of people, it became very possessive. All and, right. and not necessarily a mean way, but it's sort of like that idea that this is sort of, I guess, our thing. And it can be really cool because, you know, any band would kill to have a dedicated fan base, especially for a band that doesn't really get standard radio play and don't necessarily have like the national exposure that, you know. And they're fucking weird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for them to have gone as far as they have is great. And I guess much like comic books, you know, like you said, there's a lot of merchandising. So, of course, like, you know, I'm sitting here wearing one of their T-shirts as I'm recording this show. And, you know, my girlfriend, because that's actually how we met was, you know, through Twitter and, you know, our fellow fans. Mm -hmm. You know, it's obviously something that's just very deep. And I've never really thought too much about the merchandising. And I mean, yeah, does it suck that maybe I won't necessarily be able to get everything that, you know, they put out? Yeah. Because, again, I'm just a collecting addict like that. But yet, yep. I don't know. Like, it doesn't bother me as such, but it is kind of weird how much that has affected some people negatively. And it's kind of a bummer. It is. And I luckily, I bitched about it on Facebook, and people came to my aid to help me out. We're a very family, weird family, but a family of people. And I have met some of my favorite people, including yourself, being this band. So... It, it's one of those where I think the unsettling part of it is I don't feel as much of that family connection anymore. So from, from many, I still do. There's a girl named Amber that I met at Neverender and I, she's my friend for life, but there, I see a lot of new fans and I hate to say it like that, but they, they're just there for, Oh, look at this cool shirt and this pin. And luckily I don't see it as much as I used to, but that's what hurts me is instead of talking and to talk concept for a second, we don't have a lot to talk about anymore. We've all either figured it out or given up on it. And I think that's why it bums me out. The Color Before the Sun was very personal. It was a very great album. But that's not what we... And it's not about us, I know, but it's not what we need. We need something new to talk about. And that's why the merchandising kind of bums me out, because that's what people are talking about. They're not talking about this grand concept. We don't know what happens before or after these things. To hit on all points geeky... Think of comic books. If your favorite comic just ends, but it's unresolved, what do you want? And then that author comes out and releases something completely new. It's still great, but it has nothing to do with what you what you wanted. Right. So I want the family feeling back, but mostly I want something new to talk about. I want to know what happens to Sirius, because I will always call him Sirius. I want to know what happens inside of the keyword. There was a lot of theories, and what was cool about when the Afterman albums came out, which I guess to kind of preface for those, um, back was at starting in fall 2012, there was Afterman yes. Ascension, Afterman Descension, which tells the story, um, about basically the keywork, the symbol that I'm sure most people probably have seen, you know, associated with the band. The Afterman deals with him encountering that for the very first time and all the crazy shit that happens afterwards. That album, in a lot of ways, almost feels like, I don't know. And this is where it's tough for me because, yes, I want to know more. I want more of the concept because, you know, as a fan and as someone who's just generally geeky and, you know, you want to know this and that, I want to know more about it. But 
perhaps some of the lore is because it's shrouded in mystery because i mean look i don't know if you really dealt with any of like the message boards or like subreddits and things like that or even on twitter where we kind of went on for like seemingly hours with like almost yes. fan theories about what happens at the end of Afterman. On one end, you know, it sounds really super sweet. Like, okay, he's going back for the woman he loves. But to me, that album always felt like a really, like, down ending. Like, it's kind of screwed up. Like he dies? He dies, but the idea that what if, you know, was it Mary was his wife? Yes. What if, you know, she ended up as one of the malevolent entities? Like, wow, this is super geeky. I'm realizing as I'm saying this. (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, what am I saying? But the idea that... Yes, he went back for her, but considering how she left the world, she may not necessarily be where he feels that she is. Because I always thought it would be kind of a cool, even like a third story or even like a comic book where it turns out he goes back in, but granted, he also gets the help of like, let's say, Sentry or like a Vagria. And it's like they actually start like this new team of like going through to try to like purify the keywork. See, now, and that would be a great comic event, because I, th- I think it would be a horrible album. But this, that's the kind of stuff that I miss talking about. Right. I, I miss those endless hours of what-ifs and these could happens and stuff, which, again, and we've all grown up a lot. Most of the people that I know that, I, that are really into Coheed are getting on in years. They're establishing families. And so the band's growth reflects our growth, and in a way, I'm just refusing to grow. But at the same time, I, I do get it. The Color Before the Sun wasn't my cup of tea, but to look at it as as what it is, it's fantastic. It is a perfect embodiment of everything that the band and the community have become. I think what also happened is, let's be real, as much as you know, we love Claudia and things like that, I think in a lot of ways that attachment that we all had that we felt we were missing, okay, maybe I won't compare her to Lucas and I'm not, but the idea that you know you created this thing and it's kind of grown past you, but I'm sure he's got to hear it when fans decide to kind of get a little crazy and you know, maybe mm. like the new album wasn't necessarily what they were into so of course it's like you know you get people who maybe react very negatively and especially on like a social networking aspect because the one thing about that band is they're very fan oriented and they're they're very connected to their fans you know like you said it is a family all intents and purposes but you know family can be kind of jerks sometimes i never wanted to think about it like that but you're right he has created the not a monster but he's created something that he because I know you, you've probably met him and you've, you've talked to him or heard him talk. No matter how big he becomes, he is this very humble, quiet, shy guy. Right. And uh, he did it. They played a show here in Indy last summer, I do believe. He had to go out with his big hood on in Indianapolis, a small-ish rural city surrounded by – but he, had, he felt so uncomfortable around the people that he was about to hang out with basically for two hours. He had to walk – covered i guess you're right i couldn't live like that i couldn't fear every random person that wants to walk up to me for an autograph i don't know like this is gonna sound really weird but yet the idea of like let's say when i started this podcast when i started it with uh, my former friend it was just originally gonna be something that we were gonna kick back and just do because why the heck not because i felt like we were entertaining enough that we can kind of hold like an hour or so yeah as time went on as you started putting it out into the world you know some people started to notice 
It was definitely nothing on par with like anything Coheed was doing by no means. And I'm not trying to pump myself up, but idea of, okay, you you made something, it's out, people are enjoying it. Now with that also comes expectations because I'm sure, you know, people are wondering, okay, what's the next move? Are you going to do another concept? Are you done with that? As someone who is creative, now that you made this thing, do you continue on with that? Do you grow? And, you know, it's hard because you don't necessarily want to stagnate either. I really do feel that if they didn't write an album like The Color Before the Sun, I think they probably would have broken up. I've been wary of that since, you know, No World for Tomorrow. Not that I don't trust. And they, they'd break up much like most of the soundtrack is. they just like, hey, we're done. Not, oh, God, we all hate each other. They just... I, I see what you mean. If they would have had to do the same conceptual proggy album, they would have been like, man, I, nah. All the other songs, from my understanding, unless I'm completely wrong, and feel free anyone on Twitter or whatever to say otherwise, but yet, I always felt like the albums were written from a personal aspect first, and then, like, the concept or the Amy War stuff was kind of written maybe a little, like, after that. Like, okay, this is how it pertains to my life. Now let's take the stuff in my life and add it to this other layer. But so to me, the new album just feels like they took away that other layer. So it's a little bit more, I don't want to say honest, but it doesn't have, you know, necessarily that veneer of the the concept to it. It's more forthcoming. Yes. And I think they needed that to kind of just step away from it a little bit. And to tell you the truth, the, the tour that they did for that was probably some of the best performances I've seen from that band, because I think now kind of getting away from it a little bit. They seem like they're gelling, and I think a lot of it also, as I talked to in the episode with Niche, having, um... Super Duper Cooper? Yeah, like having him with them also kind of reinvigorated them, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, those interview where, you know, they said at some point they probably will return to the concept, but they had to do this in order to move forward, so... I mean, is it everybody's cup of tea? No, because I've actually had quite a few disagreements with people about it, but yet, I think you know, it's kind of like a necessary evil. Yeah. And you're right. Cause I didn't see the actual color before the sun tour, but I went to the one where they were playing sh- songs from it. I have never seen all of them that hype. They all loved what they were doing again. I mean, they've always put up a, a great show, but as a fan going there to see them, it's our energy that you usually vibe. Up. But this one, Claudio was moving around. Travis is moving around. Josh is a fucking maniac. He really always. is. He, I, uh, my, my girlfriend's getting into them a little bit. She loved Color Before the Sun, but I've had her watch a couple of Josh Shepard videos. I've never seen her smile so big. He makes everyone around him. He's the Bob Ross of fucking prog music. <laughs> because he's... But yeah, but then Zach Cooper, I stand in front of him every time I go. I, I make a point to stand yes, in front of him. Yes, I was about to say the same thing. I, I did that last show. He's not singing with them. He's not singing with us. He's singing... To a song that he loved. Right. To a a story and to a life moment. He's recalling memories. And I love that passion. See it in his face. So I love that you you brought up that tour. With this one, you know what? You might have changed my outlook on the whole family a little bit. Because they did. They gave it everything they had. And each one of them, I I feel like they were enjoying it for the first time. That that was their first tour as Coheed and fucking Cambria. That was second stage Turbine Blade in someone's basement every time it really felt like that and it's so great that you mentioned the zach cooper thing because i remember when he first joined because i mean a lot of us were like i mean mike you know everything aside you know was a great bass player and he was with them from the beginning so you're like who can replace him 
And I remember seeing like that first announcement video, and here's this guy with this weird haircut, this kind of this goofy smile. Who, and again, I say this in all, you know, and there's no hatred behind it, but he, I was like, who is this weirdo? Like, yeah. He looked like he didn't really fit. And then it was, what song was it? It's Mothers of Men, um, off of, um, Aftermath Ascension. Oh, man. The bass lines on that, like, here's a dude who, like, I, I didn't know who he was at all. So next thing you know, like, I remember pumping up the bass and I think it's around, like, I would say, like, the last chorus. Look at this guy showing off. Dude, like, he, he brought the funk for, for that song especially. But he brought the funk back. But I'm there with you. I was, I wasn't skeptical of him as a person. I was like, this is, it's, Chris Penny worked for a couple of weeks. This guy will work. <laughs> My girlfriend and I, almost once a month, we go through our, you know, Chris Penny, Josh Eppert thing where it's like, I think I piss off a lot of people when I say that Year of the Black Rainbow is like my favorite album, but I guess that's like that prog lover of me because I'm a fan of technical drummers. Does Josh necessarily play like Chris? No, but he's got his own vibe, but yet, like my girlfriend always says, yes, he may not necessarily play with that same crazed level of, and I'm not saying he's not skilled, but I'm saying they are two different drummers. Yeah. Like he's kind of the heart of that band. Like you can't really do it without him. As I've gone on, I mean, Year of the Black Rainbow has been out for six years now. I've always loved the story. I had the chance to read the novel, so I've always loved the story aspect, so it's always risen that. But I've actually started to listen to Year of the Black Rainbow. And, you know, other than Pearl of the Stars, which is possibly the worst song ever made, it is a great album. And I'm, I feel bad for missing out on all of that when it was new and just writing it off because everyone else hated it. You know, some stuff just grows on you later on. There's something to be said about those challenging listens where they basically force you to really sit down and absorb music. And I think for a lot of people, and there's no judgment, it just happens. But You're the Black Rainbow was just, it's a hard album to get into. And uh, some people were tuned into it from the beginning. And I think it had to grow on some people because I think, if nothing else, having Chris Penny be a part of that band kind of forced them to switch up their sound a little bit, you know, have them go out of their comfort zone. To me, I feel like Travis is playing on an album is probably some of the best stuff he's ever done. Definitely. And that's what I'm getting to here now that I'm listening to it. Like when skeletons live that that's a great song. And it's one of those that now that I've listened to it, it's fine. But the only way I could have at first was it, it took me a long time to do this, but I would shuffle coheed instead of listening to it albumly right and it just came i was like what is this what the hell is this (laughs) like this and it but they all have that certain feel the mars volta is one of those bands for me that when i first heard them was whenever uh delouse came out i was like this is the fucking worst screeching noise (laughs) i did the same thing and and then uh get into the greek jonah hill mentions the mars volta was like mars volta that sound that's I listened to him again, and oh man, it's like heaven shone upon me. The Mars Volta is by far one of my favorite bands of all time, and they are the weirdest. I don't have any idea what's going on through most of it. I just know that the way the guitars and the tension is built and the vocals, just this mythological sound, I can listen to Mars Volta until I die. And I want them to get back together because with At The Drive-In, again, another one of those bands that I had to go back to. Now that I like the Mars Volta, I'm like, maybe I can deal with this screechy crap. (laughs) It is. It's one of those that I hated it, despised it, was the worst crap ever. And now that I've listened to it with a more fine-tuned ear, 
it's amazing. Yeah, but the production of Yurto Black Rainbow, and I'll go back to Kohi, yeah, yeah. is a lot different from how they normally produce. Because well, who I can't remember who the producer was, but um, did a lot of stuff for Nine Inch Nails, and there's a lot of layering done. What, did Trent, did Trent Reznor actually produce this record? Because now that you've mentioned it, it kind of sounds like Trent Reznor had a hand in this. I don't know if it was Trent Reznor, but I definitely know it's somebody he's worked with. Okay, I had these headphones, and I had picked them up. They were only like $20, but it was one of those like, you know, max sound. It basically played the equalizer a little bit differently. So then you get to hear all the guitar parts. And like I said, the way that they play notes are like, and I'm not even just saying this as a fan. I've never heard anybody play the guitar the way they played on that album. And that might have a lot to do with how I listen to it now. Because whenever I listened to it at first, I had just a MacBook and I listened to it through those speakers. But now I have a pretty decent setup in my studio for when I'm working. And that's when I started listening to it. And yeah, Claudio's in there. Travis is all, all together. They're jamming. So it's one that it's definitely grown. But have you had the, the opposite ever happen where something you loved just sounds like total crap? A lot more often than you think. You know, a matter of fact, I just had this happen recently. Because um, obviously by the time this was recorded, the new Blink-182 album's out. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of go back and forth as to whether or not I like it, and the jury's still out on that. But, you know, like what often happens with bands I've listened to a very long time, when they put out new albums, I go back and re-listen to it. Maybe it's because I'm older now, but I've come to realize that with the exception of the nostalgia that's kind of attached to it, Enema of the State, and even parts of Take Off Your Pants and Jacket are really bad. I like that they are the band you chose because the new album is pretty good. Matt Skiba is a great addition, but Pants and Jacket and Enema, they're 24, 25, close to our age when they do that. You should not be talking about hating your parents when you're 25. And that is where I am at with the new Blink album. Sound-wise, awesome. I think losing Tom was the smartest thing for them. But even by the time Take Off Your Pants and Jacket came out, they were already in their mid-20s, close to 30s. Yeah. Looking back, yes. Granted, that album was probably written because a lot of us were either in high school or, you know, in grade school, whatever, and, you know, would maybe apply to certain things, you know, like I said, your parents are aggravating. Even though my parents are still kind of aggravating. I love you guys. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but yeah, it was done in that way of like that, you know, fuck you, mom and dad, teen rebellion, woo, we're wearing, you know, crazy clothes and, you know, fuck the establishment, but yet... Looking back and growing up a little bit, that album really just feels a little disingenuous. Exactly. And that's why I've grown much, much, much bigger fan of like 2005 emo, Bayside. Bayside speaks to me more now as an actual adult than it ever did whenever I was 15. Right. And all of a sudden, it's a band that I listened to. Masterpiece was a fucking badass song, and everyone listened to that. But now I'm listening to all of their albums. I'm glad you picked Blink-182 because they never really grew. You listen to albums like uh, Three Cheers for for Sweet Revenge by Chemical Romance and then Black Parade. There is so much growth between those two albums. Right, and I hated Black Parade when they came out. But And that's how I was. And so I started listening to Bayside and Motion City Soundtrack. Those two bands have become two of my favorite go-to feeling-like-shit listeners because whenever I was 15, it was just angsty music. Now I'm 26 years old and it's life. It is poetry. It is things that are actually happened to me. All of a sudden it's bands that, like you said, they grew, but not only did they grow on me, I realized that they grew. Yeah. And it's crazy. Like it took me years to realize that commit this to memory was basically about his battles with alcoholism. And I'm like, at the time I didn't drink. 
Like, you know, the worst I had was, you know, maybe some fights with my parents and, you know, the occasional girl issue here and there. But it's like, I've never really thought about somebody who suffered any sort of addiction. And to be honest, as someone who deals with clinical depression, certain things start hitting. And his music makes a lot more sense. And just as I'm now at that point where, like, Motion City soundtrack is kind of becoming a soundtrack to my life in some ways, they fucking broke up. And I'm like, God damn it, guys. Like, I just found ways to make you relevant to me. I had never seen them. I, I liked them a lot in high school, but I'd never seen them until the Commit This Memory 10th anniversary. The one and only show I've ever been been to of theirs, and I'm I'm very thankful that it was that one. Yeah, because that was just a monster of an album. It was my my favorite album by them. Eh, second favorite. But And to see them like that, it was just fantastic. But yeah, no, it speaks so much more to my life now. And so I'm, I go back and I listen to the music I listen to, like Haste the Day. I thought it was the bee's knees. But the most impressive band growth I've ever seen and will ever see is brand new. Four albums that have nothing to do with each other. That's four different artists that have happen to have the same name. And maybe not the most growth, but definitely Jesse Lacey and, and, and company were never afraid to do whatever the hell they wanted to do. For a long time, and I think I still do, like I did not like Daisy. And I kind of still don't. And yet... I think about it, though, like, rewind a couple of years before that, I said Dejan Tondo was one of the worst things I ever heard because, you know, I was that kid who, you know, oh, hey, I have this problem with this one girl, so your favorite weapon's my shit. And, you know, <laughs> coming back, that album's just so fairly just, I don't want to say juvenile because, you know, they were younger, but it reeks of, like, high school melodrama. Yep. And nothing had really happened to them. But So then when you get to Dejan Tondo and it's like, oh, man, they're actually talking about shit. Same thing with Glassdraw, like I noticed that happened too, because their first album is very hard to listen to sometimes. You know, Glassdraw's always been a band that's in my peripheral vision, but I've never actually listened to them. I feel bad for that because they're much like Under Oath, they're kind of ingrained in that culture. Right. There was a little one off song by Head Automatica, and it, didn't he at one point have something to do with Glassdraw? Because that's where I heard about them. And I can't remember what it's called. But it was me and my sister's fucking jam. And now I'm really aching for some 2005 emo music. <laughs> We're talking, I don't want to talk about it too much, but the new Ghostbusters movie. We're not going to talk about it. But Fallout Boy, perfect example of this weird trajectory of it. Have you heard the new Ghostbusters single done by Fallout Boy? No, and not for any reason other than, you know, fall, you know, talking about music that you loved and then realizing that you don't like anymore. Yes. And I know, I know it's bad because I stopped listening to him for the dumb shit reason of the fact that they kind of became a thing. But the and music did kind of suffer a little bit. Th the music didn't suffer a little bit. It suffered a whole bunch. Because <laughs> if we can talk, From Under the Cork Tree is one of the most, if not the most important album of my life. Because it has, it's been one of those that has grown with, I've always loved it. But as I've gotten older and older, it's starting to resonate and more and more. But that's a band that Blink-182 really, really hard. But at least when Blink-182 switched up their sound and, you know, they became a lot more, I don't want to say mature necessarily, but, you know, like the self-titled. Granted, it's funny because you talk about, you know, most important album in my life, but that self-titled, you know, it sounds so cliche, but that album got me through a lot of bullshit during that time. And it. It did. My my girlfriend, she's really she's quite a bit younger than I am, but she talks about that one as that's her Blink One Eighty Two, and to think about it, like, hey, I'd rather that be my Blink One Eighty Two than Enema. Enema is a great nostalgic album, but we like we've already covered that. 
it sucks. But yeah, so Fall Out Boy is kind of the same thing. But no, I didn't listen to the new song. And to tell the truth, it's because I've heard the band and what they've kind of done musically lately. And I'm sure people love it, but I just know it's not my thing anymore. Because it's not even really for me anymore. Any thoughts on this Ghostbusters movie? Positive or negative? Because I've never heard a differing opinion. But I, I want yours because I feel like yours is going to be well thought out. I am like a really big Paul Feig fan. Bridesmaids is by far one of my favorite comedies. It's hilarious. It's fucking funny. Yeah. And it's a movie that I quote like with my cousins quite often. Like it's just funny shit. And what was the other one he did? Um, The Heat, the one with um, Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock. That movie yeah. is fucking gold. Paul Feig has kind of earned his stripes for me. And since he's worked with the majority of the women in his other projects, like, I think he knows how to get the best out of them. Let's be real. Like, unfortunately, we're never going to get the original Ghostbusters back. They're all old. Harold Ramis is dead, and he is a very big proponent of why a lot of those movies in the 80s were funny, because he wasn't just an actor. He was a writer. Yeah. You know, don't get me wrong. Bill Murray is great, too. But granted, someone still had to write the scripts for him. Yeah. And I know there was also that thing where he didn't even want in on his project. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. I know it was a big, big fight. I'm struggling to not automatically dislike this for the default reason of it's not the Ghostbusters. Because I am with the times. Things need to change. And I have no problem with being all-female cast. Thank God. Women are funnier. My problem? The heat was good. Bridesmaid is hilarious, but Melissa McCarthy is kind of like Zach Galifianakis. I really do feel that in a way they kind of pigeoned her into those kind of bullshit roles. And thankfully, she's taken that. Have you seen Spy, by the way? No, I have not, because I am defaulting to Hipster. I hate it because it's her. You know what? I'm going to recommend it for this reason. That movie has a commentary on not only her career... But I think also her critics of her career, because I'm going to try my best not to spoil it. But, you know, the general premise, right, where it's like she's, you know, behind the desk and she ends up being a field agent. Yes. Every time they give her a cover, it's the same cover where she's like this, you know, older, homely woman who, who like lives with a bunch of cats. And she's supposed to be some sort of tourist. And, like, she's got, like, these really frumpy clothes. Yeah. And that's kind of fine. But then, basically, throughout the movie, she's like, you keep giving me these bullshit covers. I'm going to come up with my own. I'm going to actually start dressing nicer. And I'm going to basically give my own spin on this. Yeah. If it's not Paul Fig, I think they have a tendency to make her like that. Like, she's the crazy older lady who might very well live with a bunch of cats. Yeah. But she's so much more fucking funny than that. But I don't think, outside of, like, Paul Feig's movies, no one's really given her much to chew on. Okay. I don't know. I would see it. I I think you might find it funny. Why I asked you is exactly the answer you gave me. I I guess you're right. And I do... I want it to not be the Ghostbusters, because I love the Ghostbusters like any insane person would. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to see it done over again. So I'm okay with it being... That's why I'm okay with the cast. It's just... I don't want a bunch of one. I don't want forced comedy. I don't want to have to feel like I have to laugh. And that's what I'm afraid of. I have nothing but faith in the ladies in charge. I know they can take those roles seriously and do them well. I just don't want to walk into a movie called the Ghostbusters that has such gravity to it and be forced to laugh. But I know everybody in this movie is a lot funnier than what those trailers did. Yeah, that's another weird world to be living in now is trailers. 
I remember specifically the very first Spider-Man. I went to see that three times the day it came out. It was fucking nuts. But trailers used to be this mini movie in itself. And it really brought you wanting more of whatever movie it was. You could have never heard of it. And now with movie trailers, it's like, we need to give you everything you need now. It's like Jurassic World. I don't know if you saw it. Don't know if you like it. It was one of those like, oh, look, a Jurassic Park movie. Everything is going wrong. Yay. But that was the one of the first times I noticed that trailers just... They give you everything because is it because we need all of that because they think we need all of that or is it because if they don't, no one will come see it in the first place. After all these years, studios, in a way, I think don't really know or maybe they just don't care. The first Jurassic Park is still a monster of a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I watched it on Netflix a couple of weeks ago and on this tiny crappy screen, it wasn't on like a giant screen of stereo, but it still holds up. Like that scene, you know, when like Tim and Lex are like in the kitchen and like the raptors are like trying to sniff them out. That's scary shit. I'm still freaking out. I'm still, si- I'm, I tensed up. I'm like, oh shit, don't find these kids. They're going to die. Like that movie, it just, it holds weight. And I think when you tell people they're going to make another Jurassic Park, I think immediately Immediately you got asses in seats. Now, will it necessarily be as good? Who knows? You find out at the end of the day. But yeah, I don't think you have to work as hard to market a movie like Jurassic Park. So it was really weird that how hard they pushed it. And maybe they figured that people wouldn't have gone because it's been so long. But that movie fed off of a lot of nostalgia because mm-hmm. the kids who saw it in 1993 now have kids of their own. We're very much in tune to the stuff that we were into. I think maybe even more so than some of our parents were. Yeah. So, of course, you know, you're going to watch these movies with your kids and things like that. You know, I remember my dad very vividly sitting me down and watching the movies that, you know, he and my mom would go see because eventually by that time they were coming out of VHS. So, you know, I had no choice but to watch Star Wars. When you told me that they were going to make a prequel, I'm like, Dad, we got to go. And I feel like it's the same way with something like Jurassic Park, where you don't really have to fight that hard. So it was really weird that they went out of their way to like tell you everything about that movie when it's like, all you got to say is Jurassic Park 4, and it kind of sells itself. Yeah. And that's why, always talking about Star Wars, because it's the bomb, Yeah, that's why I think Episode 7 did, it was a cultural thing, because there was three generations for the first time seeing the same movie, but... Is because J.J. Abrams kept the world's biggest movie a secret. Did you have any idea who Kylo Ren was? Probably a fleeting suspicion, but that's all you had. I had ideas, but, you know, I didn't necessarily know who he was or who anybody was, really. I mean, all I knew was the extended universe stuff that I hoped they would use. But we went into the world's biggest movie having no idea what was going on. When will you ever feel that again? That information was kind of starting to come out a little bit. But, you know, I kind of went on a self-imposed blackout because I'm like, I didn't want to know people's names. I freaked out when I found out that, like, the Stormtrooper that popped up in the first trailer was Finn. I'm like, shit, I didn't want to know that. I, I watched the very first trailer and that was it because of moments like that. But, you know, well, I thought Finn was going to be a, a good guy the whole time. Like, he was on some sort of rescue. I mean, he was on a rescue mission, but on a, you know, rebellion base. When he was an actual Stormtrooper, I about cried. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. I'm like, oh my god, he is an actual fucking stormtrooper. So we can geek for Star Wars for a second. Absolutely, go ahead, let's do this. I saw that movie twice. The day, (laughs) the day I saw, I saw it twice because I went to see it with my dad the day after it came out, and then my girlfriend who doesn't like Star Wars, I was like, babe, we have to go see this. You'll love it. She loved it, and at that moment, I knew J.J. Abrams had given us something. 
that's why I love J.J. Abrams, because think of the movies he's put out in the last few years. Star Trek. What did that do for that series? Brought it to relevance. Yeah, because it was kind of dead for a while. Super 8. May not have got, but it was so E.T. It, it was E.T. 2. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was one of those, I love him because, just like he did with Force Awakens, he, not recycled, but for lack of a better word, he recycled New Hope. That's what he does. But he does it in a, I love this thing so much that I'm only homaging to this former thing. So, The Force Awakens, yes, was very much like New Hope because it blew up a big rock. But it was so new that all these characters that we already knew, Han Solo was new again. He wasn't Han Solo anymore. He was the man formerly known as Han Solo. And I never thought I could feel that about Han Solo. I knew that character inside and out. I knew him. I knew him as Indiana Jones. But J.J. Abrams gave us this Han Solo character that none of us had ever seen before. For maybe the kids who didn't go to like the re-releases or watch it on VHS, but think about, you know, like I said, they have kids and it's like, this is now, you know, my little cousin wants to be Finn and it's like, that this is his Star Wars now. Yes, it did pay a lot of, you know, homage to the stuff that we grew up watching, but yet now this is like, this is their new hope. And I think that's really cool that like, it's really hard and it kind of goes into a lot of what we we're saying before, but let's say about Coheed and things like that, where, you know, making these things kind of new for a different audience. Cause like I said, like there's some people who maybe, you know, you're the black rainbow was like their first album, or I don't know, maybe some people call it before the sun's their first. Mm-hmm. And it's just cool how like, you know, star Wars and things like that managed to bridge things and make it not only great for people who had already been there, but you know, anyone who's just now jumping on, they have a place to start and starting fresh. And it's, it's crazy good. Like, damn, I wish I could be that good at creating something. And and I think the way it's been handled it, yes, it has been marketed to death and there are, there's are bottles of water that have C3P on it, but I've never seen something bring people together over one. There is no fighting about star Wars anymore. There is just, have you seen the force awakens yet? Why have you not? Maybe it's because of what Star Wars is, but it feels like everything that Marvel's been trying to do for the geek culture and everything DC's been trying to do, Star Wars has done it. Right. They did it in one movie. They showed the power of the Force. (laughs) Nice. But they used all the Force that is Star Wars, and I have never been so happy to see Star Wars Rebel logos everywhere. I see old fat dudes walking out of Walmart in the coolest Star Wars shirts. I'm actually wearing a Star Wars shirt right now, but the coolest Star Wars shirts I've ever seen. And it's, it's surreal. And it's very, I'm like, dude, we have something to talk about. It goes back to that subculture thing. Star Wars is a prime example of it, but geek culture in general is something that I'm proud to be part of, though it has its separations and it has its suicide squads. We still have something to talk about with everybody. Even if it's the smallest knowledge of it, someone has something to talk about with everybody now. I think it's really cool. It's kind of off-putting from time to time. But for the most part, you could walk up to anybody and say, have you seen the new the new Civil War movie? Chances are they have, because it's the highest grossing movie of all time, or something like that. So, it's so Star Wars being specific, it's, it is a very cool feeling, but also kind of scary to know that Everything is full circle. Everything comes around in a circle. And I'm just, I'm wondering what's next. I'm not sure how aware you are of old extended universe lore, but I'm pretty sure Ray and Kylo are siblings of some sort. And Kylo is a good guy and is a split. He's a, he's a secret agent 
And so the second one will be him being a super badass and almost turning to the dark side. And the third one will be all of them coming together to defeat Snoke. That's what I want. That's how it should be done. And God damn it, just do it. Obviously, I'm sure Claudio grew up with Star Wars too, but mm-hmm. you know, you think about KBI, you know, the knowledge beast in Inferno with Coheed, Cambria, and Jesse. Yeah. When that got splintered, because obviously by the time we get to No World for Tomorrow, the three of them are dead. But now you have you have Chase, you have, you know, Claudio, then you have Sizer, and it's like kind of like basically I said, that circular narrative of Oh shit. Now it's like they're the new KBI. Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> what? Did I just blow your mind? I hadn't thought about the other two. <laughs> I always forget that they survive all this crap. Well, considering that, oh, Jesus, we just lost everybody again. <laughs> if you enjoyed the Star Wars, welcome back to Cody Chat. But anyway, well, since she's kind of like the key to all that, but, you know, it's like they play those very specific roles. They do. In order for it to keep from being too much of a retread, what happened before, that Kylo Ren's turn, I think, will happen sooner. When that confrontation happens on the bridge at the Starkiller base, after everything that happened, like, he thanks his father. It's like, thank you. Like, why would he ever say that if he really hated him? You know, yeah. it wasn't like, die, you bastard. It was, wait a minute. I think you kind of held me out. And and, and that's, that's why, because in order to become a full Sith, you have to kill someone you love. Right. J.J. Abrams is far too smart to hit on his, not infidelity, but his insecurity as much as he does. He is showing us that Kylo Ren and Ben Solo are still one person. It's like Silence of the Lambs, where they, where she mentions he keeps saying his name and makes him a person. I think that's why we hear Ben so many times. Yeah, and it's crazy. I didn't even think about the scene when Rey has the vision when she touches the saber. Mm-hmm. Now, when I saw in the theaters, I heard the voice that was speaking to her. And to tell you the truth, I honestly thought that was Luke. But then watching it on um, Blu-ray with my dad, we had the closed captioning on. The voice is credited as Ben. It is? Or Obi-Wan, rather. I'm sorry. Okay, because they ripped, they ripped Alec Guinness's dialogue from New Hope and used it. I thought you were about to just, oh man, my mind just kind of imploded a little bit. It's just interesting to me that he's the one speaking. Like, you know, it could have been Yoda. Mm -hmm. It could have been anybody else. It could have been any of the bajillions of Jedi, but it's Obi-Wan. Well, okay, so think about this. I can't remember where I heard this, but Obi-Wan's in seclusion for however long. Obi-Wan gets bored. Obi-Wan meets a nice lady. Obi-Wan makes a little family with a nice lady. Obi-Wan has a daughter. Daughter meets Luke. Luke procreates with said daughter. Oh, you think they're going to bring in Mara Jade? Possibly, because if you think about it, how strong, how powerful is Rey? She's got to be some form. So if she was the daughter of Luke and a other half-Jedi, that makes her pretty much full-blood Jedi in a way. She's got to be obviously connected to somebody because Luke wasn't even that good when he started out. He sucked. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the comparison everyone keeps missing, is Luke sucked and so did Darth Vader. But the women in that family are just, they're on point. And because I think it's it's too small for her to be the Solo's kid because they already have a kid. Right. And yes, maybe if Ben was to go rogue, they would have tried again, but they wouldn't have left their second child abandoned. They wouldn't have... Because that's how Leia was found. So I'm thinking she is Luke's daughter, but not in the way that some random-ass person. I think she is Obi-Wan's descendant, and that's what makes her so powerful. And it would also give credence to, you know, the face he makes when she shows up. You're like, oh, fuck. (laughs) I want to talk about that face. That face, to me, the first time I saw it was very, ah, shit, how'd they find me? Because my face initially said, if they can find me, anyone can. But upon second and... 15th and a thousandth viewing 
I agree with you. He's like, oh no. Because he's at the first Jedi Temple. He is definitely grieving over something at the time. But he, he doesn't look at the lightsaber like that. He looks at her. The lightsaber just happens to be in her hand. It's like he completely looks past his his father and who he was to this person. Logan, man, thanks so much for sitting down and chatting with me. This has been badass. And like, I'm really upset that I didn't do this sooner. No, 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 man. I I should have reached out to you. But anytime you want to have me on, please do. This was a lot of fun. I, I like being able to just talk about whatever. In the interest of shameless promotion, because I am a fan of that, <laughs> you know, talking about Disney. But please, before you go, let everybody know where they could find you, your company, and anything else you want to plug. My name is Logan Richards. I am iHeartToys on Instagram. It's E-Y-E-H-A-R-T-2113. Uh, Facebook.com slash iHeartToys. Again, E-Y-E-H-A-R-T. Uh, Instagram is my main place. I do have a web shop. The link's in there. But yeah, just check it out. I make toys and I make messes and I like nerdy stuff. Very cool. And that'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues. And we will see you next issue. Bye, guys. Hey guys, I'm Adrian. And I'm His Issues. Wait, what? Hey guys, I'm Adrian. And I'm... Wait, wait, that's not right. Hey guys, I'm Adrian. And I'm Eileen. Tune in to the Adrian Has Issues podcast. Each week we chat with some great people. Including me from time to time. Comic book creators, comedians. Musicians and actors. Tax collectors, Zamboni drivers. <sighs> point is basically anyone willing to sit down for a geeky discussion or two on all things pop culture visit adrianhasissues.com where you can download and stream every episode especially the ones featuring yours truly visit adrian has issues on facebook and twitter and subscribe to the podcast on itunes and stitcher please leave a rating and review and tell me how amazing i am us i mean us ah oh, mckinney you're way cooler than i am anyway oh thanks babe Oh, and Adrian Has Issues is also a proud member of the Tangent Bound Podcast Network. Awesome. Nice save, Brodor. <sighs> Visit AdrianHasIssues.com.